Please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 33. We've been in a series of messages throughout the book, Paul's letter to the Romans. And we find ourselves at the end of chapter 9 this morning, looking at verses 19 through 33. We began this chapter a couple of weeks ago dealing with Paul's anguish, Paul's anguish over the lost condition of fellow Jews. Paul was agonizing and even went so far to say that I'd be willing to take their place. I'd be willing to be judged and damned if only they would believe. And we looked at two excuses for their unbelief. Number one, God's failure to keep his word. As God failed to keep his word, it was in the form of a question. And Paul answered that certainly not. He made it clear that it wasn't God's failure to fulfill his word as much as it was Jewish misunderstanding of his word, not reading his word carefully. For God has always said he will save a remnant. And not all Israel are Israel. Not all those who are circumcised in flesh make up those who are circumcised in heart. And so Paul made it clear the word of God has not failed. Well, the second objection in the form of a question was, well, if the word of God has not failed, then God must be unjust. God must be unjust. He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And Paul discounted this objection as well in saying that God does what he pleases. After all, he is God. He's in control of all things. And he made that clear in the life of Pharaoh as we study, that God is absolutely sovereign. Today, we look at the last portion of the chapter, as I mentioned, where Paul presents one final question. And really, we might say one final accusation against God with reference to a Jewish rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Now, the thrust of this chapter uh, has morphed from interest into why the Jews don't believe in the Messiah to a bigger doctrine, and that is the entire sovereignty of God. When you start talking about one thing, and it's inevitable that that one thing intersects with something much bigger than itself, and that is God's sovereign activity in the world and even in human hearts. God has kept his word, and there is no injustice with him. And now Paul finds with this third question in verse 19 that he is defending God's character. God's character. Here's the outline for this morning. I want you to notice uh, three things. One, we have a careless question in verse 19. And then secondly, a thoughtful answer in verses 20 through 29, which is where the bulk of our time will be spent. And then finally, a simple conclusion. In verses 30 to 33, a careless question, a thoughtful answer, and a simple conclusion. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon our time to study together. Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and him only. And we pray that by your spirit you would move in our midst, touch our hearts and lives, and speak to us of eternal things. 
Lord, help us. Enable us to give you all the praise and the glory at the end of it for all that you do in our hearts and lives. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, I want you to notice a careless question, and that is in verse 9. Paul says, You will say to me then, why does he, meaning God, still find fault? For who resists his will? Now, the source of this question, like others, is a sinful human heart. God is not opposed to good questions. In fact, at the end of this chapter, we'll see that very clearly. He welcomes questions. You have questions about God and who he is, his character, his works. God welcomes those questions. But a question like this really isn't a question. It's kind of like a, a loaded question. You know, it's full of assertions. It is full of assumptions. And many of them are erroneous about God. And so the logic of all three of these questions in this chapter goes like this. God has not kept his word. He is acting in an unjust manner. And there is no reason for him to find fault with me since he controls everything and everyone. And the conclusion, of course, is I'm not responsible for my sin. Now, the attitude behind this question reveals a great ignorance. A great ignorance of things like creation and the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. You see, this person who forms this question is saying, in essence, I would just as soon ignore the first 11 chapters of Genesis. God, why do you find fault with me? If you're in control, if you are calling all the shots, then what difference does it make? And so this person doesn't own their sin. Why does God find fault? He doesn't find fault because of actual sins that we commit. He finds fault, first and foremost, because of the original sin in the Garden of Eden. And ladies and gentlemen, we're not robots. We are moral creatures created in the image of God. And our God is a personal God. You see, this question presupposes fatalism, as if God were nothing but an impersonal force, and all these events in human history are taking place but there is no one personally involved in our lives or in the world. We are nothing but robots. We're just fulfilling what the plan is. But God is really not personal with us, but merely an impersonal force controlling the universe. Now, all of this thinking is behind this sort of question. Why does God still find fault? Why should he blame me for my sin? Why should I take responsibility for that? For who resists his will? I mean, on the surface, it sounds sound. <laughs> but is it fair for God to hold us accountable to him when he makes the decisions? Now, Paul's going to answer that question. He's going to respond by clarifying who God is and who we are. Because most of our problems, ladies and gentlemen, arise and seem impossible to solve because our image of God is distorted. See, we were made in the image of God, but that image has been distorted by sin. And sin affects every part of our being, including our minds. And so when we look at a certain thing, when we look at truth, often there's obscurity in our heads because we don't see as clearly as we should see. 
And so Paul gives this thoughtful answer. And I want you to notice uh, two portions of this this morning. First of all, he speaks of the greatness of God in creation. The greatness of God in creation. You see, this question, once again, is really an accusation against God. As if he were impersonal, as if we're a bunch of robots, as if God calls all the shots. But he goes back to creation, which this uh, questioner apparently missed. Look at verses 20 and 21. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? See, Paul reminds us of God's greatness as the Creator. And he speaks of the creator-creature distinction. And whenever we lose that, we don't see things clearly about who God truly is. See, the heart of Paul's response is saying, you have a very low view of God and a high view of self. You have a low view of God and a high view of self. And it's important to remember who God is and who we are with reference to him. John Calvin had a lot to say about that. He said, if you really want to know yourself, look at God. Look at his holiness and his greatness, which is manifestly known in Scripture. And then you will look back at yourself. And you will see, all of us would see, how far short we fall of his glory, of what he intended humanity to be, because of the fall of man. When you look at God, you'll understand yourself. The great philosopher said, know thyself. <laughs> you want to know yourself, look at God. His holiness, his glory, his majesty in his word. And you'll get a clear picture of who you are. Well, Paul uses the potter and the clay analogy to emphasize the vast difference between the creator and the creature. You should not read this analogy as if uh, we are clay in the sense that uh, we are inanimate objects. That's not what Paul is saying. You have to be careful when you use analogies. What Paul is trying to do with the potter and the clay analogy is demonstrate the vast gulf that separates the creator from the creature. And if we lose sight of that gulf, that distance, then arrogance begins to rise up, and we begin to see ourselves as little gods. We begin to see the true and living God as our servant. That's one of the reasons why we read Isaiah 45 this morning. Did you notice that? Take that home and read it slowly. In fact, read all the chapters in the 40s. Chapter 40 through 49 in Isaiah. Read the whole book if you like. But in those chapters, you will see the greatness of our God. God takes a pagan king, Cyrus. And he leads it by the hand like a little child. And Cyrus becomes the one who rejoices, basically, in serving God as a pagan king to lead God's children from exile. I am the Lord, there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. Behold your God. I am the Lord who does all these. In verse 11 of that chapter, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and His Maker, Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of your hands. 
It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands and I ordained all their hosts. The Lord God Almighty is the Creator God. He made all things for His glory, including human beings. But sin has marred the picture, the intention of what God wanted in human beings. And that's why He sent Jesus to recreate us. That's why Paul said in 2 Timothy or 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, new things have come. That's what it means to be born again. You start fresh, you start new as a child of God. And so Paul calls our attention to the greatness of this God in creation. Don't forget that God created you as a moral being. Don't forget that you're a human, not a machine. And don't forget that our first parents willfully chose to disobey. And so as this question presupposes, you cannot go through life talking to God as if He were in control of all of this mess and blaming your state upon Him. See, that's one of the practical tragedies of this question. Why does God still find fault for who resists His will? Don't you see that in our culture? People ignore God. They ignore His creation. They ignore so many things that the Bible speaks about as true. And then they go through life saying, this is just the way I am. And if there is a God, they say, this is the way He created me. And we start developing new categories. As if there's no more Him and Her. And we go into the absurd. We start going through life saying, well, I am homosexual, and that is the way that if there is a God out there, He created me. I have a right to be this way. No. Not any more than we Christians have a right to be liars or embezzlers or cheats of any kind. God created us as moral human beings. And when the fall occurred, He made provisions to rescue us from the tragedy that happened to His created order. And that is the tragedy of the human heart, our fall into sin. But for our purposes now, Paul is saying, take a look at this God of yours. He is the creator. He is the potter and we are the clay. Take the time to look at his greatness. The bulk of Isaiah was written to show us the greatness of our God. Because too often, we have a very reduced perspective of him. Well, Paul speaks of the greatness of God in creation. And then he speaks of the greatness of God in redemption. Look at verses 22 through 29. And this has three parts to it. First of all, God's patient grace and mercy towards sinners. Look at verses 22 through 24a. What if, Paul puts a proposal out here, God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy. And so Paul speaks of vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy prepared for glory. Now you see, if we go back to the basics of God's creation, we're reminded of the fall of man in the garden. We're reminded of our sins. God made man upright, but man chose to sin. 
And our federal parents, our representatives, Adam and Eve, because of their sin, we were plunged into sin, according to Paul in Romans 3. And as sinners, we have a tendency to worship a God of our imagination. He is saying, your observations of God are off. They're off. Try to think of a way of illustrating this. You know, when I was a kid, growing or living in Miami as a child, my mother, uh, for cheap, as a single mother, uh, for uh, cheap entertainment, used to take us to the airport. And in those days, they didn't have barriers. You know, I think you could go out and run on a runway if you wanted to. (laughs) There was no safety involved, you know. So we pulled up. We pulled up by a runway, and uh, she would allow us to sit there for an hour or so. We watched the planes come in, and uh, and they would land and they would take off and that sort of thing. That was our cheap uh, thrill for Saturday night. You know, have a good time. But one thing I remember about that is every time I saw one of those planes land, you know, you could see it when you go down Hillsborough Avenue, right in front of the airport. It looks like this plane is hardly moving. It goes so slow. But in reality, we know that's not the case, because in order to keep a vessel like that in the air, suspended for a while, it's got to be traveling a couple of hundred miles an hour. But that's not the way it looks. I mean, you and I have a distorted mind as a result of sin. And we look at our God, and we don't look through the lens of Scripture. We get a distorted understanding of who He is. We think we see reality. Just like I thought I saw that plane just barely moving. I actually thought I could outrun it, you know, (laughs) if I could get on that runway. But my observations were distorted. And that's what sin does to us. It makes us treat God like he's one of us. And we don't give him his glory. We don't see him as the one who creates both darkness and light. He brings well good things and calamity. We don't see him as sovereign. Our minds are affected by sin. And so Paul is saying, have you ever considered looking at it this way? What if? What if? And he goes on to say and reemphasize that we are image bearers of God. We're able to converse with God. We're encouraged to explore his revelation, to ask questions. And think his thoughts after him. In summary, our sin is our fault, not God's. And so he's saying, you're looking at God in a certain way. Now try it this way. What if this God in heaven, the true and living God, this holy God, is holding back all of this wrath that he rightfully owes to all sinners? I mean, we've been plunged the whole human race into sin. God has no obligation to save anybody. And like Jonathan Edwards says, what if he's holding back all of this wrath for no other reason than to show mercy and compassion on some? Now that'll really cook your noodle, I believe. (laughs) If you really think about it, is God so unjust? No. What's unjust is my understanding of him. I don't see him as he really is. Because I don't see him as all-powerful and all-glorious. And Paul is emphasizing the fact that this holy, personal God is under no obligation to save anyone. He would be perfectly just to let us all perish. Nevertheless, he has chosen to show mercy and compassion on some. What if God did this? 
if he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called. If you're a Christian today, I hope you appreciate your salvation as much as the Bible places appreciation on it. Because God had no obligation to save us. He had no obligation to open our eyes to the truth. He has no obligation to lead us by the hand into salvation. We would perish with all the rest. And Paul is saying, look at your God in the appropriate way and stop creating Him in your image. Because this is the all-powerful, sovereign Lord of the universe. And He does all that He pleases. But oddly enough, He does it to save a people for Himself. And so we see God's patience grace and mercy towards sinners. And then notice the second thing in verses 24b through 26, God's patient grace and mercy extend to the Gentiles. Paul goes on to say in the latter part of verse 24, not from among Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in that place where it is said of them, you are not my people, they shall be called the sons of the living God. Paul's portrait of God's patience and grace is magnified by his love and concern for the Gentiles. You see what Paul is doing? He's underscoring the fact this God, don't ever think that he's impersonal. He's so personal that he deals with his own people, the Jews, in such a beautiful and marvelous way and he goes beyond that to the Gentiles. And he personally reveals himself to them. He is personal and gracious to all of his creation. You know, the Jews were supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. To show them the glory of this great God. And how personal and gracious and benevolent he is. But sadly, they chose to ignore God and his word. And to go their own stubborn way. But Jewish failure to obey God did not thwart God's plan to extend His salvation to all the nations, to Gentiles as well as Jews. That's what we read in the Great Commission this morning. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. You know what I find really interesting about this quotation from Hosea is the, the context. You know, Hosea was that minor prophet in the Old Testament where God told him to go marry a prostitute, basically. And his relationship with this woman was to mirror God's relationship with his people. Now, God's people played the harlot so often and walked away from him. Spiritual adultery, we might say. But God kept on pursuing. He kept on loving. And here we have God applying this marvelous word through the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles. I mean, listen to the words of Hosea 2, where this comes from. But verses 19 and 20. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? These words were written to Jews. But Paul is taking some of the most intimate language of God to his people in the Bible, and guess what? He's applying it to Gentiles. 
His people acted like they were not His people. And that's why the word of Hosea is spoken in such a manner. My people acted like they weren't. But Paul applies this intimate passage to Gentiles. No wonder in the New Testament we read, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That love is an incredible love. No wonder that Paul would say in Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. It is a very personal, intimate love. It's a jealous love. He loves you and cares for you. And He cares for everything in your life. And so God's patient grace and mercy extend to the Gentiles, to you and to me, but also to the Jews. Look at verses 27 and 29. He speaks of the Jews. I find it interesting that he speaks of the Gentiles first. And we go back to the first question in the chapter. Has God's word failed? No. God never pledged to save all the Jews. Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah here. And he made a promise to preserve a remnant in the midst of all the rank unbelief for so many centuries. Look at verse 27. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. You see what Paul's doing? He's going back over the chapter and saying, did God's word fail? No. He is executing His word. Is God unjust? No. He not only showed kindness to you and compassion and mercy, He showed it to the Gentiles. That's who this God is. Behold your God. He never lies. He's always just. And He responds to us unlike we deserve, with grace and mercy. Now you'll notice finally the simple conclusion in verses 30 through 33. He says in verse 30, Gentiles find salvation in Christ by exercising faith in Him. The Gentiles weren't pursuing anything. God pursued them. Just like you and me, God came after us, not the reverse. And the only reason we said yes to Jesus is because He first chose us and wooed us to Himself. Verse 31, the Jews insist on obedience to the law as a means of salvation. But there is no law of righteousness for a sinner to follow to be saved. The only way, according to verse 32, the only way for a sinner to pursue righteousness is through faith in God's perfect, righteous Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we've done as Christians. We don't put forward our good works. We don't put forward any supposed righteousness we have. We simply accept and embrace the free gift of God and the righteousness of His Son, Christ, for ourselves. And God redeems us and He pays for our sins. Don't stumble over the stumbling stone. Another quotation from Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you seen Him as God's payment for your salvation? Do you see Him with all authority in heaven and on earth, sovereignly controlling the events and affairs of your life, as well as human history? There's a great, great rest in that. And it's no wonder Jesus said, Come to me and you will find rest for your soul. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this marvelous and complex chapter in the book of Romans. Father, we thank you for the presentation of your greatness and your glory. 
And I pray, Lord, that you would magnify our view of you so that we see how small we really are and yet how important we are to you. Father, if there's one or two or more here today that have never embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray they would not stumble over the stumbling stone, but that they would build their lives on this stone. And that, Lord, they would trust in you, not in their own righteousness, and experience salvation today. Lord, for the rest of us, increase our understanding and view of you in every aspect of our lives. Help us to trust you and to walk with you, the sovereign Lord of the universe. We give you praise and glory for all that you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.